Hi, I'm Kira Gorman, and you're listening to QUB Voices. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. You can find us at QUB Voices on Twitter, Spotify, and iTunes. episode, I spoke to Victoria Baltag and Hilary McCollum about the way film and fiction can function as creative vehicles for protest, be that protest against the ravages of time or against the erasure of experiences which challenge the dominant social order. We touched on themes of history and memory, talking about the deep significance of origin stories to our sense of our personal and collective place in the world, and also about the power and courage of acts of resistance. All these elements reappear in the thesis work of Milena Williamson a PhD student at AEL, who is my guest today for April's Researcher Spotlight. Hey, Milena, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself to just ease us into this conversation? Yeah. Hi, Kira. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here. Um, So my name is Milena. Uh, I'm I'm a third year PhD student uh, at Queen's, and I'm doing a creative writing PhD specifically in poetry. Okay, I think you're actually only the second creative practice PhD that we've had on this podcast. Will you tell me a little bit more about what that involves? Yeah, so it's sometimes a tricky one to explain. Um, The creative writing PhD involves um, both creative work and critical work. The emphasis is on the creative, but it does have two components. Um, So for poetry, it's about 60 pages of poetry, which would be considered a first draft of a manuscript, potentially. And then for the critical, it's uh, 20,000 to 40,000 words, um, which could be like a couple chapters, um, a couple articles, yeah, on a a critical field that relates to your creative work and sort of supports why you chose to do your creative work and what its significance is. Do you write those two parts at the same time or do you (laughs) do one first and then the other? You do one first and the other. So (laughs) everyone always says, yeah, the creative comes first. Um, because it's it's not a critical PhD, as so many people do. It, it really is about developing your own original work and then kind of showing the context and the related fields that it's coming out of. So yeah, what, what kind of literature it's kind of coming out of. Okay. And can you tell me a little more concretely what the, the topic of your research project is? Yeah, definitely. Um, so my PhD is this archival exploration. Um, I'm diving into my father's experience as a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. Um, So I have his journal, photographs, poems, and reports from this time. This was 1966 to 1967. Um, So when he refused to be drafted, refused to fight in the Vietnam War, he was assigned to alternative alternate service. Um, He did this with the American Friends Service Committee. Um, And so he went to uh, a small village called Litoa in Tanzania, and he worked there for a year and a half as a teaching accountant. Um, And so, uh, yeah, this is that's that's his experience. He was about um, he would have been 
20, 23, I think 23 turning 24 this year, something like that. Yeah. So basically the same age um, I am, or I, I was at least when I started my PhD, I started at, at 23, I think. So kind of looking at our similar experiences across time is the, is the idea. Ooh, that's really cool. I actually really like that. Um, I have like vague memories of the Vietnam War from doing it for my leaving cert in history. <laughs> um, I won't ask you to give us a refresher or a history class, but can you tell me a little bit more about conscientious objection? Because obviously we're situating this research spotlight in the theme of creative protest. And, and I do mm-hmm. know that conscientious objectors, objectors rather, um, didn't want to serve in Vietnam or didn't want to be drafted. Yeah, don't worry. Yeah, it's definitely a mouthful. It's one of those words. Yeah, conscientious objectors. It definitely <laughs> makes you a little self-conscious saying it. Um, but yeah, so a conscientious objector, um, also helpelessly known as a CO. So when I talk about a, a CO, <laughs> yeah, you can use that. Um, a CO is someone who um, basically opposes war, refuses to participate in war. Um, and that can happen they can refuse on both um, to take up both combatant and non-combatant roles. So things maybe like, um, like, you know, war medics or intelligence, they can refuse to kind of not only to fight, but to participate in that kind of whole system of roles that, that support war and support violence. Um, so it's just the, the refusal of that to object on conscientious grounds, if you will. <laughs> How does one go about becoming a CEO? I imagine it's not as easy as just sending letters saying, sorry, guys, don't want to go to Vietnam. Yeah, it's really, it's really complicated. Um, it, it has changed over the years. Um, it, it, the kind of grounds for qualifying um, changed through various uh, Supreme Court cases. So it went up to kind of the highest level of the courts. A couple things had to be done. You had to write basically a long essay talking about your beliefs and your kind of commitment to pacifism or your resistance to war. You had to get, I think, um, various kind of documents, letters of, you know, kind of proof or maybe somebody from your your religious community, your community in general. So yeah, it was a lot of work to become a CEO is the, uh, is the emphasis on that. It wasn't an easy process and it was definitely a process that favored middle-class educated, um, well, men at this time, because um, it involved an extensive, like kind of philosophical writing element that you had to prove and lay out your beliefs. So yeah, it kind of, um, it, it was easier for educated middle-class men of this time, for sure. There's quite a lot going on there, isn't there? There's, you know, um, there's history, there's war, there's military culture, there's legal scholarship. It sounds like a mm. very complex uh, area to be delving into, especially for a critical component that's then poetry. Um, is it hard to to balance those two things? Yeah, um, it is. I think it's it's hard to figure out this balance of, uh, you know, not obscure. It doesn't feel obscure to me anymore, but kind of very, uh, very particular historical details that to some people are obscure. Um, you know, uh, very specific, like legal wording, um, you know, where's the room for like poetic language and imagery when you're also talking about, um, you know, facts and figures and, you know, um, the number of, so like the number of, um, COs would have been about, um, 170,000, 
Um, so that's um, more than the C number of CEOs in, in Vietnam was much more than the number in like World War II, for example. So um, talking about this experience that, that happened to a lot of men, that happened to a few a few thousands, um, almost a couple hundred thousand. Um, but yeah, finding the right words to talk about this experience um, is, is definitely a challenge in poetry, uh, for sure. I really love the way you described it at the beginning of this question. You were like, oh, you know, this is um, possibly an obscure piece of history that's not really so <laughs> obscure to me anymore. And I think that sums up the research experience very well. Yeah. You You choose an area and then suddenly it becomes all encompassing for you. You become the expert in it and you're trying to explain it at like the dinner table with people and they're like, what are you talking about? And I suppose that leads me nicely to the next question, which is why did you choose this topic for your research? Yeah. Um, another, another big question. Why <laughs> did I choose it? Um, I think there's a lot to say about this, you know, this role of being a CEO. Um, I think it's this really complicated territory of it's both a product of and a resistance to war, like without the war, if there were no war, there would be no need for COs, but that's not the world we live in. So it is this area of um, protest that I think is really interesting. Um, it's an experience that is both like highly individual and also not quite universal, but like you'd say, I think that it shaped a generation, the generation of men of young men during the Vietnam war who, um, were basically in limbo between the ages of 18 to 26, waiting to see if they would be drafted. Like this was a kind of not only the war itself, but what, but the experience of waiting to see what would happen in their lives, a life or death matter, I think is, would have shaped a whole generation of people again, including my dad who would have been, um, drafted and then, and then obtaining his CO status. Um, on a personal level, you know, I chose this project because I, I was really interested in this chapter of my dad's life. Again, this is all happening to him in his like early mid twenties, kind of the age I am now, I'm now 26. But like I said, when I started this project, I was that age. Um, so it was just this way for me to get to know him on a, on a new level. And I'm so lucky because he yeah, is just, um, is very open and, um, allowed me to kind of take a look into, like I said, his journals and photos and reports and poems and has just, um, has really embraced the creative side of it. Like when I talk to him about my work, you know, he's just so encouraging of me to, to see what comes out of my sort of, um, my present exploration of the past. You know, he's just as excited as I am to kind of see how it all turns out. <laughs> what a gift. That's a lovely. And I love the way that you've described it there as your present exploration of the past. And I think sometimes we do think about um, the Vietnam War as this thing that happened like a very long time ago and conscientious objection, like, I'm not sure, is that still a thing today? Like, what, I suppose, I think really what I'm trying to ask here is, you know, what is the, the present day impact of, mm. of the, the, the status of a CEO? You know, is that a thing that still happens today? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. The, you know, what, what is the CEO today? Um, so part of the importance of doing this work, yeah, is because even though the draft ended in 1973, 
um, the kind of the idea of the draft, a kind of imaginative, hypothetical and fear of war, you know, very much exists in um, in American culture, in the individual's minds. Um, and that's kind of reinforced by what we have in America is a kind of registry. So it's still true that um, all almost all male U.S. citizens and immigrants, 18 to 25, they are required to register for the selective service, which keeps a record of their names and addresses. Um, and what's kind of said, the, the kind of language of the selective service system is that uh, in a crisis requiring a draft, uh, men would be called in a sequence determined by random lottery. Um, the lottery was part of, of, of how the draft was set up. But um, it's, it's that phrase I really want to highlight in a crisis requiring a draft, um, which is quite scary um, given the current state of, of American uh, politics, both um, at home and abroad, the, the kind of state of American militarism at home and abroad, um, that kind of thing. So um, you kind of feel that that potential for crisis quite frequently, I think, still in American culture. Um, it's also very much a thing that's um, the, I think as, as long as we have this register registry system, we'll need the CO role. Um, so for example, um, this debate even around like gender is, is being had currently. Um, so there was a, a report, um, a kind of governmental report that um, basically said that looked into the idea of the draft, the, the all male hypothetical draft, as we currently have, and said that um, women registering, um, this is what the report said, is a is a necessary prerequisite for the, for them achieving equality as citizens. Um, so um, that is that's kind of a, f a complicated and potentially frightening phrase, depending on what your uh, political stances towards, you know, towards the military is. Um, but I think, and I just learned this this week, um, it is really interesting because the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, um, as of 2021, it is also kind of filing the same um, case. You know, they're saying that the all-male draft is, is sex discrimination. Um, so the ACLU is not saying whether is not trying to advocate whether women should be required to register or whether the registry of names should be disbanded entirely, but they are making a kind of important case to say that this is an example of, you know, legally sanctioned sex discrimination to have an all-male draft. So I think that's really interesting. That case has like just been filed. So we're kind of at an interesting point of like, well, are we going to go regardless of gender? People have to have their names down on this list in a case in a, in a crisis potentially requiring a draft or are we going to go the other way um and is it going to be is the registry going to be disbanded and and be really completely an all-volunteer force which is um mostly what we have really except for this hypothetical list of names so um this is all very like contemporary like um yeah like i said the aclu case was was filed as of this year so um I'm still learning a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a live issue, isn't it? Like it's it's a yeah. you know, it's still such a, a current and contemporary issue um which I think, you know, perhaps is 
kind of surprising. As I said at the beginning, like I think we we think this belongs to a different period of history that doesn't have anything to do with us now. And that's really not the mm. case. I, yeah. I think I, I love that we've established a really good background now for talking about your research and things. And I always come back to the question of you being a poet um, and you participating in a creative practice PhD, which requires both poetry and, and a critical component. Mm. And, you know, research is such a difficult uh, slog sometimes, you know, I, I think I want to ask you, what drew you to this particular path? On a personal level, I think, like I kind of touched on already, it was this desire to connect with my father, um, to learn more about him, to, um, yeah, just kind of make these connections across time, if you will, which I, I think are really poetic and interesting. Um, it was around this time that he was writing poetry and he was seriously thinking about poetry. And so that, that really speaks to me as a poet. Um, as well as I think all this stuff that I've tried to kind of lay out about the draft and America's long history of militarism and the CO role as being both inside and outside war culture, if you will, the real consequences of life and death, you know, what does it mean to, what does it mean to serve your country? What does it mean to, um, to disobey that order, to, to take up arms against another person? What does it mean to take on that role of being a CO? And, um, and, you know, even, you know, even when it's not a matter of life and death, like the, the people, you know, including my father who became CO is like, this was seen as a very, um, you know, some people kind of lauded this as, you know, these were people who were standing up for what they believed in, what was right. But of course, they were coming from a generation of men who fought in World War, World War II. So people like my grandfather would have seen this role as um, extremely cowardly and something to be extremely, um, like maybe even ashamed of. So um, there was this huge, like, cultural shift and um i think even more about like what it means to to potentially be a man in in america you know there was this huge shift of you know people who served in like world war ii to people who were then on the streets of america protesting the vietnam war and and what did that say about men's role in that country if if service was no longer kind of part of um part of their journey into adulthood, if you will. So um, that's all, I feel like I got a little bit away from the question, but um, I just feel like looking back on all those big questions, looking back um, as a person born, you know, much a generation later, like is just so fascinating to me and um, an experience so unlike my own. So it's kind of like, why not? Like, why not do this work? You know, why not? learn so much about a previous time and a previous generation like to me that's an easy an easy question why not <laughs> and is there a reason why you chose the creative practice route specifically mm -hmm. to look back into the past this way yeah I mean I think part of it is that I've been doing poetry for so long that was already my my love um it was something that was shared like I said between me and my father as of especially as of this time in his life when he was also writing poetry. But I think poetry as this 
form, um, it allows us to be so hyper-focused with language. So I feel like I, I get, um, kind of the best of everything. You know, I can, I can take snippets of legal language or newspaper headlines about the war and the kind of arguments about conscientious objectors in the draft. And I can pull all this into my poems that are also experimenting with, you know, my point of view, reflecting on, you know, my experience today, but writing about my father, but also imagining, you know, the generation previously, like his parents and how they saw um, um, the war unfold. So um, although I, I stay mostly in my point of view in this project, I'm often writing about these other people and other characters in the poems. So I think poetry allows for that, like, Mm, writing about the self, writing about other people and, and all that beautiful, you know, crafted imagery of, of scene and, um, and all those things, but it also opens up the door for, for, yeah, like, you know, bits of collage and bits of, um, text pulled from again, like legal documents and newspapers and things like that. So I think, I think that would be harder to do in prose because poetry kind of it's this like vacuum that like sucks everything in and you get to create this like new thing out of it which is just totally unlike anything else I guess you seem to really fold your research into your poetry like you're making a cake (laughs) yeah oh I love that (laughs) making a cake yeah a creative a creative and critical cake um (laughs) yeah I think people sometimes have this idea of poetry as being, you know, you sit down at your desk and an idea strikes you and, you know, and that's it. And then you're off writing um, some like inspired masterpiece, I guess. But uh, it's a lot of... it's not like that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I obviously, it depends on the work and the project, you know, but um, it's a lot of, you know looking through the New York Times archive from the 60s and um, checking out obscure books about the draft and um, yeah, like poking around in my case, like looking at like, you know, governmental websites, downloading um, (laughs) Supreme Court cases, like reading Supreme Court cases for the first time, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm I'm doing a kind of like history module I never even had in school. Like this is my (laughs) time to do it. Um, So yeah, I think poetry is research, I guess. And, you know, it just, I suppose it's hard for me to talk about. It's almost like this question of, you know, research and poetry, like for me, for so long, they've been the same. And now I'm trying to figure out how to how to talk about them as if they're different. Um, I think poets look outward to all kinds of things for inspiration. I think I think it's this combination of internal experience and self-reflecting and wondering about things, but also looking to the world and being an informed citizen and trying to make sense of the individual's place in society and a system and a culture. Like, I mean, again, that's, that's like the big question, right? That's, I think that's the big question of anybody living today, but also of course of um, you know, my father and the people of the, that generation, the, the, the men who were drafted and who had to face 
a huge choice of whether they were going to serve or try to become conscientious objectors, flee the country, um, fake a medical illness or, or prove a real medical illness that would get them out of the draft or potentially go to prison. Like those were some of the options, uh, I say options, you know, available to, to people. And those options varied depending on, again, one's class and access to education and access to healthcare. Um, so, so yeah, like the draft forced men to really reckon with their place in society. And again, I think that's a question that, that anybody can, um, can relate to even, even if that's not their experience. So the research allows us to get at some of the answers ish at answers to those big questions. That's what research does. I think. Is there a particular moment that's marked your research journey so far? Like something that's uh, been a surprising finding Mm. or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's interesting in research too. It's like what you plan to do and what you stumble upon, get obsessed over and can't let go of (laughs) is really fascinating. Um, So one thing I found that I really wasn't expecting was um, um, a kind of a mention in in the journal, in my father's journal about um, a Degas painting that he would have, he carried with him as a a little postcard reproduction. You know, when you go to museum shops and you buy a postcard as you do um, with these beautiful paintings on them. So um, he had this Degas painting, um, what would it be called? It would be called, um, Woman in a Tub. I had to think about that because French and English titles of paintings, uh, Woman in a Tub. Um, and, you know, of course, this being the age before, you know, phones, like if you bought this painting on a postcard and you carried it with you, you like that was kind of when you're you're avenues to looking at art to appreciating art um so yeah he got this photo got this postcard somewhere I'm not even sure where he picked it up or bought it um but he had it in his possessions when he um was assigned to to Latoa to this um, village in Tanzania and um he, he took that postcard with him um amongst his very few belongings frankly like um there's a part in the in his journal where he lists his belongings and um you know it's there's not there's not many (laughs) to be honest um so I just got totally obsessed with this postcard painting reproduction whatever you want to call it um of of this beautiful Degas image of this woman um in a kind of tub on the floor kind of washing herself and um I think it, it it caused me to think about, you know, we already wonder, you know, what is the meaning of art? You know, what does great art do for us? What do these beautiful images evoke in us? Um, that's all compounded by, by the, by the element of, you know, what does great art do for us in a time of war, in a time of great um, change and upheaval. And from, from my father, it was leaving home and um, obtaining his CO status, but also doing a kind of alternate service that he was assigned to. Um, And so all that was happening in the backdrop, but he had this painting reproduction um, that he himself gravitated towards. So I think it provided me with so much mystery and all these questions are totally like 
to a certain degree unanswerable, but it was like this element of if it, if the painting called to him so much that he wanted to carry it with him, I felt it was calling to me and, and I wanted to know, um, and I wanted my own relationship to the painting and, and what it may mean. And this whole, whole big story, you know, of again, uh, politics and culture and the American draft, like all these big, big issues to come down to a single painting provided such like focus and depth. And I think such an interesting contrast to trying to do the, the big political poems that speak to history and, and that kind of thing. So just a, a very unexpected turn. Yeah. I'm so glad I asked that question. Um, what a what a stirring answer. I really love it. And I love that you've evoked mystery also, um, because mm. I, I think that leads nicely to my favorite question in these researcher spotlights, which is about the other mysteries of um, working life as a PhD. And, you know, this idea that we might all have like research rituals, specific things that like get us in the mood for writing or mm. get us in the mood for reading and, and things like that. I'm wondering if you have any of these mysterious research rituals <laughs> that you would like to share. Gosh, um, research rituals. Uh, yeah, I think rituals. I think I need some more of those, to be honest. <laughs> um, you know, I think we can all agree the PhD, PhDs, you know, already involved a lot of juggling. I feel like that word juggling is something I hear a lot now in the time of, uh, yeah, the pandemic. We're all juggling a lot. So research rituals. Um, I can't, I can't say I, I am very ritualized about this. Um, I kind of do it when I have time and energy and uh, space. Um, but I, I think the one small thing I will say is um, I try to leave myself little hints, little um, clues to kind of connect one day to the next. I guess I think of this as sort of like Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs <laughs> um, being a sort of raised on all kinds of fairy tales, magical, magical stories like these. Um, and that can be, I think, just like mm, a few scribbled lines in a notebook. Um, you know, know, knowing what page you're at, um, a, a question you're still thinking about, um, a list of things to do, all these things that can connect. Yeah, just just what feels like one day to the next of, you know, given that it's such a big project, you know, three to four years, like it can be hard to kind of figure out how the, the individual days kind of add up to to making something. So those little connecting moments, those breadcrumbs, I think are really important. You know, it's, it's kind of like the reason why I save every version of a poem on my computer. Like if it's typed up and then changed, it's dated and, and resaved as a new file, including notes files. So like in terms of breadcrumbs, like you look at a poet's like file history in their computer, like so many, so many like backtracked breadcrumbs, just in case you need to make an edit to a poem that you thought was done, but you want to go back and change your mind. <laughs> I, I love this. I, I have uh, visions of like, you know, your computer folders, like each folder for a different poem. It's like final version two, final, final, yeah. final. <laughs> oh yeah. That tweet that's like final, final, final revised, final. This is really the final, final. <laughs> <laughs> I promise this is it this time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we're all like is. that, aren't we though? And, and I suppose 
poetry in particular, I imagine is like a lot of like revision and editing and, mm-hmm. and going back and paying close attention to a particular word and, you know, wondering if there are too many syllables in the line and, you know, it's, it's a real craft. I, I, I've really enjoyed hearing more about it today and in particular understanding how it's informed by research and it's not just, you know, being randomly inspired by something beautiful outside. Like there's a lot that goes into the, the back of it. Yeah. And I think that probably lays quite a, a heavy burden on you um, in terms of how you conduct your research. And I suppose for everybody who's a, a postgrad student, I think we're all exactly as you say, juggling with many different things at the minute and we're trying to somehow get out of bed every day despite the (laughs) huge existential crisis that we're all living through right now and I really enjoy asking my guests how you manage inverted commas um work-life balance and what kind of things you do to I suppose keep yourself going on on what can be a challenging and and particularly at the moment Mm. quite isolating road yeah how how are we all managing um <laughs> is a great question one that I would love to hear other people's answers to um I think I just try to when I don't know something, I try to take a simpler approach, <laughs> which is an active choice away from the kind of over analyzing over complicating impulses of my brain to be fair. Um, and the simpler approach is, you know, what do I enjoy? What gives my life meaning? Um, so, you know, I think having people you care about and people who care about you really helps with that work-life balance, you know, mm-hmm. because for me, it's like Skyping my family every weekend, factoring in the time difference, you know, like that is a priority that um, has to happen and that I want to happen. Um, it's, Things like um, even just going down the street for a coffee with my housemate and watching the pottery, which is just finished uh, on Sunday nights, the great pottery throwdown. Um, you know, it's uh, trying as many different brands of tortellini with my boyfriend. It's um, doing my anti-racist book club with my friends from um, Oberlin College. Um, you know. It's doing all these things that I think add up to to meaning and offer me something outside of the PhD, which is which we all really need, which is really healthy, this work-life balance. So um yeah, I think someone once said to me, um, the best PhD is a done PhD. And um even when, for people in the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The best PhD is a done PhD. And I remember like I think we were in the American bar when she said it to me. And I remember thinking, this is a really important statement, like even as she was saying it to me. And it's still one that I tell other people and repeat, you know, so it shows how important it really was to hear. Um, It's a huge project and a huge undertaking and such a gift to have this amount of time to do research. Um, But it's also one that we, shouldn't be so hard on ourselves about otherwise it just makes the time totally overwhelming and unmanageable so yeah like find that work-life balance as best you can because there is a lot again there's there's coffee to enjoy and tortellini to eat and and important books to read that are maybe outside your your niche subject like you know books 
books that educate us about other things, about what's going on in the world right now. So take the time out for those things too, you know? I think that's the perfect note to end this episode on. <laughs> what, what, a, what a stirring invocation to everybody to make sure you take time for yourself in the busiest mm-hmm. of worlds. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's really just been such a pleasure to have you on. And I've really enjoyed hearing more about CEOs and your dad and poetry and, and research. It's, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun to talk to you. What a privilege to have been able to speak to Milena today. It's sometimes a difficult thing to participate in an interview like this where you have to talk about personal things. But I think when we can lean into that vulnerability even a little bit, It cultivates a sense of connection to ourselves and to others. It cultivates a sense of community, be that in person or just over the airwaves. Maybe this is too sentimental, but in a time when we all feel increasingly isolated and estranged, not just from one another, but from a sense of shared future, from the bonds of mutual empathy, maybe actively creating this kind of connection is our personal act of creative protest. UUB Voices will be back in two weeks with our next episode. And in the meantime, you can let us know what you thought of this one on social media. We're at QUB Voices on Twitter, and you can catch up on previous episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. April's episodes were co-produced by Sharon Dempsey and Angela Rogan.